Welcome to No Challenges Remaining on day four of the French Open. I am Ben Rothenberg. There were several surprising exits from the women's tournament today at Roland Garros, most notably Serena Williams, number six seed, pulling out of her second round match against Vitana Parankova before it began, citing an Achilles injury. You might remember she suffered the Achilles injury during her semifinal against Victoria Azarenka in New York, the third set of that semifinal, I believe. It was an acute injury she's been nursing ever since. And as she explained during her post-exit press conference, it's something that will need a lot of time to heal, but not something that's going to dim her drive for 24. After I warmed up and it was very short warm up. And then afterwards I talked to my coach and I was like, what do you think? You know, do we, what do, what do we, what are your thoughts with this? So we kind of both thought about it and we really realized that, it more than likely wasn't the best for me to try to play today, so. I love playing in Paris. I, I actually adore the clay. It's so, I don't know, fun for me. And I really wanted to give an effort here. So it's my Achilles that didn't have enough time to properly heal after the Open. I was able to get it somewhat better, but just looking long-term in this tournament, will I be able to get through enough matches and so for me, um, I don't think I could and struggling to walk. So that's kind of a telltale sign that I should. Uh... Serena, did you have a sense in your first round match that this was going to be a struggle for you? Yeah, definitely my first round match, you know, in the second set, I just uh, I felt like I needed to like walk with a limp and that was no good. I was like, uh. I had to focus on walking straight so I wasn't limping. And <laughs> I tried, you know, I, I always give 100% and everyone knows that, but maybe even more than 100 if that's possible. But, um, and that that is, I take solace in that. And uh, so, yeah, so I just, I think Achilles is a real injury that you don't want to play with because that is not good if it gets worse. I think it's one of the worst, so I don't want it to get to that point where I actually have a chance to get better. Yeah, I think I need um, four to six weeks of sitting and doing nothing and at least two weeks of just sitting down. Serena, how would you describe that your spirit is willing and your body is just not letting you do what your spirit wants to do? and that you're now facing more sitting after a year when you did far too much sitting because of the shutdown. I feel like my body is willing. I just, I just literally, this is not a nagging injury. This is an acute injury. So if it was my knee, that would be more really devastating for me. But this is something that just happened and it's super acute. And that's totally different. So I feel like my body is actually doing really, really well. And I just ran into, for lack of a better word, bad timing and bad luck, really, in New York. That just, it, it happened, but it doesn't, my body on the uh, is actually doing really, really well. And I can never do too much sitting because I've been working for <laughs> to over 20-something years. Um, I love playing tennis, obviously. Um, I love competing, and I love being out here. It's my job. 
It's been my job. And I'm pretty good at it still, so until I feel that I'm not <laughs> good at it, then I'll be like, oh, okay. And I'm so close to some things, I just feel like I'm almost there. So I think that's what keeps me going. Also exiting the tournament from Serena's section of the draw was Victoria Azarenka, the number 10 seed, who went down pretty steeply, 6-2, 6-2, to Anna Karolina Shmidlova, which leaves this section of the draw wide open. One of the following people will be a quarterfinalist. Either Anna Karolina Shmidlova, who's number 161, number 131, Nadia Podoroska, number 114, Barbara Krejcikova, or number 157, Svetlana Parankova. So we're already on day four guaranteed a quarterfinalist outside the top 100, which is a pretty rare state of affairs there. Also in the tournament was Coco Golf. 16-year-old who beat Kanta in the first round. She lost in three sets to Martina Trevisan, hitting 19 double faults en route to that defeat, which was tough to watch. But we are going to spend a little more time now on one of the more dramatic matches of the day. Not a shocking result by the rankings, but this match had a whole lot going on between Sarah Arani and Kiki Burton's. Burton's ultimately winning the match 7-6, 3-6, 9-7 over Irani after a streak of like 10 straight breaks in the third set when neither of them could hold serve. Irani often serving underhand did not very great effect. It was a wild match and Burton's was really feeling it physically cramping a lot through the match invisible pain and Irani was mocking her for the pain uh, during and after the match. So both of these players and their many feelings spoke about how everything unfolded afterwards. Here's Sarah Irani first and then you will hear afterwards from Kiki Burton's. Uh, Sarah, that was a, a very dramatic match. You seem to be a bit unhappy with uh, with Kiki, with uh, how she was showing that maybe she felt she was injured. Uh, what what were you feeling then? Yeah, tough match. I don't like. Uh, I don't know how to say in English. Le prese per il culo. You know when somebody joking on you because she can play an amazing match. She played an amazing match, but I don't like the the situation. One hour like. She's injury and she ran like <laughs> never. So I don't like that. She go out of the court with a, on a chair and, and now she's in the locker perfect in the restaurant. So I, I don't like these things. I'm sorry. So you feel like that she was exaggerating? Yeah. I mean, congratulate to her for the match. But uh, then after the people say to me that I'm unfair person and uh, it's funny for me these things because... I don't think she did uh, a good, I don't know, her attitude on court. I didn't like that. So you don't think she was actually hurt? I don't know. Did you see her uh, running less or, I mean, she ran like never all the point for one hour and you are one hour like, I mean, you know these things. Uh, of course, a uh, good job for her. If you want to do like that, it's a good job. But uh, I think she can even do the same without doing that. But if... It was good. I mean, I, I'm bad because it was uh, hurting me and make me angry. So well done for her. Sarah, do you fear to have a sanction from the WTA after you insulted Kiki Bertens at uh, leaving the, the court? What yeah. I said, leaving the court? We heard Vafonculo. Uh, well, I said that many times, so they didn't have to, to tell me uh, during the match, of course, uh, I'm not saying to her, I'm not saying it's like in Italian, you say that when you're angry, it's not, it's not to her. And Sarah, I just wanted to clarify, so you, do you think she really needed the wheelchair or do you think the entire wheelchair thing was, was a fake? Ask her. Ask her. Okay. Hi, Kiki, can you just 
uh, try to describe what you were feeling as that match wore on physically, emotionally, everything. Um, yeah, it was a roller coaster, to be honest. Um, uh, physically, I didn't feel great. Like, uh, I was cramping. I think everyone could really see that. But it was weird because I didn't feel really tired. But I was sweating a lot. I was cold. Um, so I don't know uh, what it really was. Maybe a little bit of, uh, of tension, of course, also in, in the body. So, But yeah, I kept on fighting and uh, I, don't still, I, I still don't know how I, did, uh, how I did manage to get the win. I just wondered, where were you cramping? Was it, it looked like it was various uh, parts of your body you said it'd be suffering with today. Um, yeah, uh, left leg, right foot, both hands. So uh, yeah, a lot of places. <laughs> and and when you when you won the match, obviously um, you obviously fell to the floor. But Sarah didn't come and come and congratulate you after the game. Were you a bit disappointed that she just kind of walked off without coming to see how you were or or saying anything to you? Well. At, at one point, I understand her frustration, of course, as well. She had her opportunities. She didn't take them. So um, you always it, it's good if you see it different. But I can also know like how she's feeling. So I, I don't take it personal or something, no. And then Sarah was saying that she didn't really believe that you were actually in pain because she was saying that you were always running well during the points and that she didn't believe it and she wasn't sure you actually needed the wheelchair after to ask you about that i mean how do you feel about her uh, skepticism well yeah for me she can say whatever she feels like but um yeah well i i then maybe i should uh take some more ac uh, acting classes or should uh proceed a career in that uh, i'm not sure what she's thinking but no uh, i didn't feel really uh really good on court to be to be honest and then as soon as the match ended i guess you just sort of released and they all came to you right away yeah yeah then it then it was even worse and i was in the treatment room for like 45 hours with with the physios and um, then I think after 30 minutes I, I stopped cramping so maybe she she should have been in there and then she should have seen uh, what happened you mean 45 minutes I'm guessing not 45 hours no minutes sorry did I say hours yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah, okay. no 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 <laughs> Kiki you've been quite sort of magnanimous about what Sarah said but it can't be nice to hear another professional sort of call into question your integrity like that um, no, it's not nice to hear. No, of course not. Um, but for me, I, I don't want to try to take it too personal because I also know like her her frustrations. I think she's also frustrated with herself that she could not close close out that match. And um, but she had her opportunities as well. So it's it's maybe not fair to take it out of me. Um, she could also look to herself and just see like what she could do better. What were your thoughts when, when you were in the wheelchair? I don't think I've ever seen anyone leaving a court in a wheelchair after a win before. So, except for wheelchair players, obviously, which there are a lot of in the Netherlands. But what, what was that feeling for you just as you were, as you were coming out of there winning but still in pain? Just what was, what was that whole mix of emotions like? It was really bad because I didn't want to leave the court in a wheelchair. Um, so I said, like, okay, no, I'm going to walk. And then the physios were like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I will. Um, and then my whole left leg started cramping. So they were really like, no, you, you're going to sit down and we, we write you off. So uh, also, I didn't really have a choice. So, um, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Have you ever played wheelchair tennis? No. No, well, I did one, like for a little bit, but it's really tough. I have so much respect, uh, respect for them. Yes.
So that's the daily update part of the show. The rest of the show is going to focus on two men who also won today. On the men's side, U.S. Open finalists Dominic Team, the champion in New York, and the runner-up in New York, Sasha Zverev, both advanced to the third round, which gives occasion to air a conversation I had earlier this week with Yannick Schneider, a German freelancer who has been covering Zverev and Team and their rises uh, through recent years on tour. So it's a conversation mostly about these two guys. So hopefully you find it interesting. Hope you enjoy. Later than expected, but still happy to have Yannick Schneider on here to discuss things going on in German and Germanic, largely tennis, is how we're going to include Austria as well. Planned to have Yannick on during, after the US Open men's final, which was between a German and an Austrian, but very happy that we're doing these daily shows again during the French Open. Lots of time to dive back into these things and to discuss the sort of new wave at the top of, well, not that new, it's been here for a while in men's tennis, but surging closer to the top now with the US Open final between Sasha Zverev and Dominic Team. Yannick, thank you for being here. Yeah, sure. Willkommen aus uh, Deutschland, Hamburg. Hello. Welcome from Hamburg, Germany. Nice that I uh, can be here. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So let's just talk about, let's go back to the US Open final briefly before we get into stuff going on this week in Roland Garros and everything like that. That was the atmosphere like for in Europe, in Germany, especially, I guess, for this US Open final where there was this big opportunity for a new Grand Slam champion for first time to come from this part of the world that's been missing a Grand Slam champion for I mean, if, I guess you, Federer, I'm sure people count as being German enough sometimes, but how, how, what was it like having this uh, this opportunity for, for German tennis after a long time? Obviously, it was not as big as it could be in a normal yeah. year without, without pandemic. Um, a bit like in the USA also that many sports at the same time have um yeah yeah a, a big influence on on the society for example you you guys in the usa you have all all four big uh leagues uh attending at the moment yeah and here in germany of course um soccer is the is the sport number one and it was uh close after champions league final and the bundesliga had just a small break and started again and other sports are regrouping too so the us open um, were not as big as they could be but I noticed that obviously I'm I'm a tennis reporter in first place doing doping, sport politics and mental stuff in sport too and a bit other sports. But I am known for tennis and I noticed that while the US Open went into the second week that the, yeah, that the wider public was focused on tennis. Mm-hmm. Not as big as it could be, but it was okay. I notice it uh, every time when I get uh, private WhatsApps from friends uh, who normally have nothing to do with tennis. And then they're writing, oh, the US Open, uh, uh, because of the pandemic, I didn't know. Oh, oh Alexander Zverev is in the second week. So that was a, a, a permission also. And of course, I got a lot of inquiries in the second week to write about from bigger media like Sportschau and Zeit and Germany, who obviously just cover tennis if something big happens for Germans. So I think in the end, it, it was a good thing for tennis with that dramatic end. Yeah. Uh, but it could have been bigger. And it's also a bad time zone, probably, for Germany too. It happened kind of in the middle of the night, the end of that final. Yeah. Yeah, but I think uh, German uh, sport fans are good in enthusiastic things if something big happens so um, obviously it's like a bubble in the social media so don't take this too seriously but i saw a lot of people staying awake for this and um, because the turnaround was close after midnight so when many people decided to stay do i stay awake or do i go to sleep now so 
I think many people uh, watched it in the end, and obviously I have to. I had to watch it in the end too, and that's why we <laughs> didn't record because then the press conference was at uh, in Germany. It was like half past five yeah, uh, in the morning, and then yeah. and then I had to write two, three articles. So that's why we're recording now at the French Open. Yeah, for sure. And I should mention, by the way, talk about German tennis. Obviously, German women's tennis has been doing well for a while. Angie Kerber winning three slams sure. recently. So this is a men's tennis centric thing. And before I don't want to get Andy Murray mad at me before I make those kind of statements. But what what is Sasha Zverev's profile like in Germany? Is he someone well known? Because I mean, I think in the US with a lot of the younger players until team finally won the US Open, you know, there was no for us, you kind of have to win a grand slam to become a big star. Right? That's how we I think we've conceptualized tennis. But Zverev hadn't done that, but he was already a top five player for a while. I mean, what was, and he's German and, you know, popular with the tweens, it seems like. So what was his uh, celebrity status sort of like in Germany? Is he someone who your average German would know who, who Zverev is? Yeah, with with Germany and Zverev, it was no love on first sight or ex mm. exactly not, not on second sight too. <laughs> I, I would say, meanwhile, now in 2020, if you are a normal average sport fan, then you know Alexander Zverev in, in, in Germany. Um, but he's not like a big, big, big star. Uh, I would say if you go in the public area here in Hamburg and ask 100 people, uh, which just normal 100 people on a normal place, not on a sport place, yeah. I would say maybe around 50 or 60 know the name and 30 know that he's playing tennis and that he's a good player and 20 to 25 would uh, would say oh yeah of sh sure it's alexander Zverev. he's world number seven uh, or now number six uh, regarding the the seeds at french open but the thing is uh, why is it like this it's a bit complicated in germany because uh, soccer is above all mm -hmm. but there was a time when becker and steffi Graf were yeah. big it was the only time in Germany where another sport was as big as football. And uh, when the slam finals um, were with the Germans, it was even bigger than soccer. And I'm 30 now, so um, I, I saw the last years from, from Graf and Becker as a child. So I noticed because I was sport enthusiastic too. But the next generation and the normal generation they don't um, relate to tennis that much because uh, obviously we had Tommy Haas and Nicolas Kiever and you mentioned the, the big success Angelique Kerber had. But with all the digitalization and uh, all the stuff you also mentioned with uh, is best of five uh, a thing uh, in 2020 with Netflix and YouTube and oh, hmm. how, how young people, how young people um, consume media. Tennis was not that big. Also, when when um, Kerber won the, the the 2016 Australian Open, um, it was good. But every everyone said after this, oh, now tennis is getting bigger. But it was not just so a bubble thing. But yeah. but to 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 come back to your question to to Zverev, it's a bit complicated because he grew up uh, traveling with his brother and his family on the pro tour as a young kid. So he got used to it and he got to know everything on the tour naturally. Yeah. So that that separates him from other young players when they come up with 17, 18, 19. They, uh, you, you see it all the time. Uh, obviously, you are at the tournaments more than me. Like if they have big eyes in the press conference for the first time or to play against a big guy, a, a top 10 player for the first time. Alexander Zverev didn't have, had, uh, didn't have these things yeah. at all. 
he had this confidence naturally because when he was 12, 13, 14, he practiced 15 minutes, 20 minutes with pros after the practice from Misha Zverev. He practiced yeah. with Federer on early stages, so he, know, he knew all the stars. And then it's something like he has this natural ability and confidence that he can, can, can be a big star and, uh, and um, yeah, obviously beat big players. And I think in countries like USA, it tastes a bit more better for him. It's better for him. And in Germany, people say, oh, he's arrogant. He has to win things. And then obviously in the last two, three years, he had problems at the slams yeah. before this year. And in Germany, only the slams matter for a wider public audience. And this was a big problem because on the one hand, there was his a bit sometimes arrogant style to a wider public who uh, didn't know him well. Yeah. And on the other hand, there were the results on the Grand Slams because in Germany, normal people, they didn't notice Masters uh, victories and all this stuff. Or sure. Even the ATP finals, they were noticed, but not that big. So I think now uh, he's, he's 23 now and he's getting older and public see him grow and educate himself making mistakes i think this year uh, is a big uh, development for him and also he is uh, perceived now better in germany and more positive although he made the mistakes during uh, during Artur tour and stuff yeah. and after Artur tour but he's more calm on court now and also in press conferences now even though he's uh, still confident but actually if he says like I'm the third best player regarding slams in this year. He obviously is right. If he plays like the third best player on court, that's another opinion we maybe can uh, discuss yeah. about because obviously I follow you a lot and I, I noticed how, how you guys went hard on him during US Open, for not for his results, but for his playing style. And fair yeah. enough. No, a lot, a lot to respond to there. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you're saying the German public kind of picks up on the arrogance, because that's been something obviously within media that we've talked about, mostly not as publicly, mostly privately among media, just how he can be seeming very, very confident, which you're right. It does come from him having been a kid on tour, growing up on tour, spending a lot of time there um, as Misha's little brother, 10 years younger. So a, a, several generations apart by tennis terms, but um, being in the mix and always feeling like he belonged and now feeling even more like he belongs now. And this week he was talking about how he you know expects to play seven matches in Paris, which would involve getting past Nadal in the draw, if that's to happen. So that's not something people usually say with much confidence at the French Open, but Zverev uh, really believes in himself. But at the same time, yeah, like you said, with his, his tennis style too, yeah, I don't think anybody was impressed by that. I heard someone, I was having a discussion with somebody about, I forget who this was. I think they said that Zverev played the worst tennis anyone has ever played to make his first Grand Slam final. Like, usually you can kind of coast by and maybe play scratchy if you're a veteran and you know how to do these things. But for Zverev to emerge sort of with uh, this level of, of tennis and winning pretty ugly, uh, you know, if you want to put a positive spin on it, you could say it's a veteran way to play and, you know, it shows his his uh, maturity as a competitor and everything. But also it was, I don't know, if I, if I was someone who was trying to sell Zverev just from a marketing perspective or as, a, you know promoting the sport perspective, I wouldn't want them to watch his matches at the U.S. Open because I just didn't think that it was at all attractive tennis to, to watch. Uh, you know, with the exception of the first two sets of the men's final, 
that was pretty good. When he came out of the men's final against a team, it was really controlling that match and playing the kind of tennis we know he can play where he's being you know, powerful and confident and dictating. That's all great. But the rest of it was just very, uh, very playing very small for someone someone so big. So I, I don't know, does, do people in Germany have the same conversation about the sort of style points or lack of style points he would get for his, his play in New York? Yeah, sure. The the tennis bubble discussed it very, very uh, directly and precisely. I think uh, what you mentioned was was a tweet from from the beloved Tumani Carroll. He said mm. like there was there was no player that the first Grand Slam one was so boring as boring as that uh, of Alexander Zverev. Some some tweet like this yeah. it was, I, I guess. Again, you have to see the bigger picture if you want to understand Alexander Zverev's r- run at the US Open hundred percent. I, I think I tweeted it at least 50 times yesterday again. I think he's the most, he he relies uh, on his confidence the most in, into the top 100. He's the most confident player in the top 100. If, if he's confident on court, if he believes in his strokes, in his abilities and in his serve, then he's an absolute top 10 player. On a very good day, he can beat nearly, any, uh, nearly anyone. But if he lacks this, and sometimes even during a match, he is confident and then he, something happens and then there's a lack of confidence. Yeah. He seems like the number 275 in terms of strokes. But what stays every time, and I think people underestimate, underestimate this a lot, is the physicality ability yeah. he developed the last years. And that I, I want to get into one point uh, which also have something to do with the perception, perception in, in Germany. He get a lot of criticized when he um, didn't play the Davis Cup in 2016 and 2017 as a young good player coming up, and uh, the Boulevard paper, the big one in Germany, the Bild, Bild Zeitung, they put a very big campaign on him. He's arrogant. He didn't play for Germany. He should have played for Germany. Blah blah blah. But on two press conferences in these two years, he said, "Look, uh, I did my breakthrough year this year." And I wanted to end the year early because Germany was playing the relegation matches uh, and it was late in the year. And he said, I want to, I want to end the, the, the year uh, early that I can prepare with Jazz Green in a four weeks, five weeks turn, only making physic, uh, physically work. So they had the five years plan uh, for the guys who listen, who don't know Jess Queen, his former um, Andy uh, Murray fitness coach of Andy Murray. And he's in Team Zverev since, uh, I think, 2016, at least 2015. Uh, and they made a five-year plan. And I think from the big guys, and he is, uh, I don't know uh, what it is in American size, but he is 1.98 uh, uh, meters. And I don't think that there was or is any guy out there playing tennis, moving well like him and has also the endurance doing a best of five match. Yeah. And I think this is the thing what people don't see that much during these matches at the US Open. To beat Alexander Zverev in a best of five match, if you're not a top 10 player, is very, very, diff- uh, very difficult and different. Uh, and he showed that in best of five, he can beat uh, a top 20, top 30, top 40, top 50 guy on every occasion. And I think this is a quality he developed uh, d- um, because of the work with Jess Green. And this gives him, that's, that's why I, I was mentioning in, in a bigger picture, this gives him the that it was the right direction 
uh, to not play the Davis Cup in the last years. But people just noticed now, four years later, that it was the right uh, decision, maybe. I guess so. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's hard to argue with the results of making a Grand Slam final and to be too critical of that when sure, you make a final. Sure. I think it's just people see this as being a strange direction, a strange use of his physical gifts for him to be coming sort of an endurance player, right, when he should be able to keep points short, to have the power, to have the height, to have the big sure, serve and everything. Sure, and, sure. And, and even to that point, uh, the Ferrer hire... Uh, not that obviously every coach has to make a player play the way that the coach used to play, but it's a weird, it's a weird tactical choice for someone who is, uh, as you said, he's six foot six, you would say in American measurements. Yeah, uh, thank you. To, to, to choose uh, David Ferrer, who's known as being the ultimate, you know, smaller underdog guy. That should, that's, that's a weird choice. You would think that, again, tactically, not that, again, not that coaches don't know how to coach players who are different than themselves, but you'd think someone more like a Becker would be somebody who would play a bigger, more imposing power game kind of style that Zvera physically could be built for. And, and it just seems like playing this, you know, outlasting guys all the time plan, Andy Murray plan, I guess if you want to say the Jazz Green model, is somewhat, something that's, you know, it's tough. That's just, it just, I, it just doesn't seem like the sort of correct size. It just doesn't seem to make obvious sense to, to me as an observer. And obviously, as he came within a couple points of, of winning the U.S. Open, so it's hard to be too critical, but it's just, at the same time, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like like the, the, the most sensible choice. I, I see your point. Uh, actually, I, I'm also a, a normal journalist, so I'm not like a public relation uh, writer or journalist <laughs> for Alexander Zverev, as you obviously know. Sure, sure. You know, you know, I'm criticizing him a lot. I criticized him a lot, uh, also off the court uh, in the last years. But again, I think you're completely right, and I, I everyone sees the point that he's standing uh, too far behind the back line again when he's not confident. When he is confident, he's standing sometimes one meter closer to the baseline and he has, his transition to the net went a lot better. But it shows up just when he's confident again. And to get your point with the coaching stuff, for example, if you see Carlos Moya, I think he showed up at the net during his career maybe one or two times <laughs> uh, and obviously just to shake hand. But yeah. uh, since he's coaching Rafa Nadal, and also I think he was coaching uh, Milos Raonic uh, for a bit of a time, yeah. he helped these guys a lot to play at the net, in my opinion. Yeah. So what what I want what I want to say is um, sometimes a coach can practice and get you a bigger picture in your uh, game style different from what he was as a player. Oh, for sure. No, I, I believe that David Ferrer is smart enough to understand that. Yeah. Sure. sure. That's that's not yeah. what I wanted to say. I just yeah. want to, to, to give the listeners a precise point of view in Zverev's example, because again, for him, uh, I'm covering him now since 2016. And uh, with each year, I'm thinking more that for him, it's not about the right coach in terms of playing style but in terms of is he getting along with him in first place and is he listening to him and then if this is okay you can start working precisely on things because obviously now we are again at the point with the confidence obviously he is a confident guy um, I remember a quote from the 
BMW Open in Munich. Uh, let me get things clear. In 2018, when he said, <laughs> and he was back then, he was 21, and he ended things with uh, uh, Ferrero, mm -hmm. and he was with his dad alone, and he said in a press talk with six, seven reporters, including me, he said, for me, there are only two coaches in the world that can help me. One is Lendl, one is Becker. So like, I'm the 21-year-old uh, guy. Um, I won uh, at this time, I think it was three Masters. Uh, yeah. I'm a top 10 player. Um, there are only these two big guys. So again, uh, and then he, he tried with Lendl, didn't work out. A lot of reasons would, would uh, put this in a way longer record than we uh, would want to have it. But a short, short version of why it didn't work with Lendl? Yeah, yeah. the, the, the short, uh, short version was uh, Zverev Jr. wanted to hire him and Zverev Sr. didn't want to hire him. Zverev Jr. made the contract with Apai, his ex-manager, yeah. alone. And then they had success in first place. Uh, Father Zverev and um, Lendl get along good. When he saw the first um, builds, then Zverev Senior wasn't... Oh, how much money he was paying him, yeah. Yeah, wasn't happy enough for... Uh, in Germany, it's called Honorar Coach. So if you're just paid for a few weeks. So, um, but this was never public. I heard these things from a few sources. I wrote these things too when I was sure that it was right. But it was complicated. But again... Uh, the Zverev family plays a big role, right? rightly so, because uh, they're getting along very well and um, his father was ill now with the coronavirus and uh, to, my, to my knowledge uh, he's also not in Paris as he wasn't in, in, uh, in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, um, I think it's more important that he gets along with uh, the second coach or the first coach uh, in, in these terms than uh, the playing style. And yeah. I think uh, he's only talking positive about Ferrer at the moment. And this was separate to the times with Lendl and uh, Fer Ferrero that he was also in press talks, um, let me say 30% positive and 30% negative sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. You mentioned uh, Ape, it reminds me of the whole Team 8 situation with Ferrer, which I was there with you in Miami uh, just last year, <laughs> I was 2019. Um, yeah. when the news was sort of coming out about Zverev being in disputes with his former manager, Patricio Ape, and being poached away to sign with Team 8, which is Federer's company, and eventually all that got sorted out. And I'm just wondering what role you see uh, Zverev having as sort of being, in, at least from a, the managerial side of things, Federer's protege, just at least on that side, because, um, you know, he brought him along everywhere, for uh, the exhibition tour in South America and Latin America. Zverev was the other guy on court with Federer, um, even if, again, the South American fans might not know who Zverev is that well. Um, he doesn't have a big profile there. Uh, he was, you know, in every year of Labor Cup and everything, and he has some some interesting contracts already, some big deals with the Zegna suits and things like that. So it was, I guess, before teammate, maybe those suits. But how how has being part of teammate shift uh, changed things for for Zverev, do you think? Again, it's a very difficult uh, topic. Uh, pa Patricia Apai tried to to make worldwide star out of Alexander Zverev, and he didn't care about the German market at all. Mm -hmm. That was also part of the problem we were discussing earlier. The separation, uh, as you mentioned, um, 
I got to publish it in, in March in Miami uh, because I was the only German reporter back then, as you as you might remember, and I got mm -hmm. a one on one with him, and he was t telling it to me like it was like, oh yeah, I missed the backhand at, yeah. <laughs> in the second set, it like a normal thing, and I was shocked because he was telling it and uh, telling me, and I was clarify it two times he said yes yes and now one and a half years later i i'm 100 sure that he didn't notice how important this information was because it sorry this word but it fucked up yeah. this whole season and uh, also parts of this year it was a long um, protracted dispute there was a there was a lawsuit from patricio ape it was a whole mess yeah he was underestimating the topic 100 at all and that's also, he was back then. He was only twenty-two years old. He's a very confident guy, but also, he, uh, uh, when he was younger, he's a very insecure guy. And sometimes he he doesn't know. He he didn't know in the past. Now it's better, but he didn't know in the past um, how to say things properly. So, but coming back to the point, the separation was a big deal. Um, they were, they are going on court. It is planned for the end of 2020. So oh, it's still speaking. not resolved. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Because mm. there was, I was, I as you know, I was investigating about it uh, a, a, a long time because I find found it interesting. I heard that there was no place for a suit. Uh, how how do you say in English uh, for yeah for a lawsuit in. Uh, England and London where the company of Apai is based, uh, I think. So that's why the lawsuit is in the end of 2020. And I think for until the ATP finals 2019, so March, April, May, more than a half, half a year, it was the topic number one. And I'm 100% sure that this is the main problem why uh, Alexander Zverev had had playing style problems in 2019 because he couldn't separate these things anymore. Um, the surf problems. Now everyone is talking about surf problems, but it started in Miami 2019. Mm. Uh, two days, two days after he, he told me publicly he lost against his now time coach David Ferrer, and all this hit shit starts. But to answer your question now, uh, Team Eight is of course. A very major agency they know what they're doing but i was a bit thank god i'm independent uh, i was a bit i was a bit frustrated and um yeah i don't think they made a good job in, in in the first year now now it's getting better with with 12 but i think it has uh, to do a lot with money with team eight with influence with the labor cup um with things Roger Federer want to secure for for himself, so Alexander Zverev had to pay his dues, so to say, yeah. to go on the on the international tour with uh, on the South America tour and stuff like this. It's like you're a new uh, sporting writer in a big newspaper uh, paper, and the first year you have to do the shitty things. Yeah, it, sure. It, it, it was a bit like this, but I, uh, I more of, above this, I was a bit disappointed how he wasn't secured from his agency and from his management uh, to not make mistakes like he did this year to celebrate publicly in uh, France uh, yeah. during during the virus shortly after yeah let's let's let's, let's get to that actually so so yeah sure. so Zverev was one of the Adria tour players um and he i think most i was the one who first shared the video more identifying yeah. him of of him partying in that club near Monaco 
um, while he was supposed to be in quarantine after he'd already put out his statement saying he was going to follow all the health protocols and everything. How was he, at least in English, I never really saw him get asked about that in in the U.S. Uh, when he came back. I, I, get, he, I think he did talk about it in German, though. And I'm, I, you know, maybe it's my fault for not asking him in German. I just never was in one of his early press conferences for whatever reason. In, it's always uh, your fault, then. It's always, it's always, my always fault. your fault. Always, but um. So, so what was what was the reaction to that in in Germany yeah. to that to that video, and how has he responded to it? If he has, H horrible. It was ho simply horrible because yeah. uh, the wider public, which has nothing to do with tennis, just get to know these things. If something shitty happens, or if something big happens, yeah. like for example. The article about Djokovic uh, and his disqualification was the most uh, readed article uh, I ever wrote because negative mm, news sure. is positive news. Yeah, so it's big news, and yeah. uh, for a wider public uh, public in Germany, it's like this, and that's what I was talking about. Because when he signed with Team Eight, everyone said, "Yeah, now it's getting better. Feder will, will take care. Um, his manager will take care." That didn't happen. Mm. Now it's. Now I have to say it's really better because uh, it seems like someone has talked to him. He is uh, way more engaged with with journalists, uh, more friendly. He excused himself only at the first press conference at the US Open to that topic because he went silent after this uh, to get through this shitstorm. Uh, um, he should have played show event in Berlin. He had a contract with the tournament, which he uh, he didn't come to the tournament, and there was a bit of a mess. But I think he and Team Eight they decided not to come to Berlin to have all the attention uh, four days after this uh, this Video. celebration, yeah. and he played it down, and he only excused himself after he was questioned at the first press con in new york which i find a bit of kind of a pity when you say excuse himself you mean apologized yeah yeah like yeah. like look if you do this if you do this like take take a breath four or five days then take a statement in the social media or so put a video say look uh, i'm young sorry total bullshit i have to develop myself i don't know but uh, then again in New York he said yeah obviously of course it was a fault um, I, I know that now so but he also there we are again with the confident versus insecure level sometimes it's about that he's not making that on purpose uh, I think it has to develop a few more years but it's getting better and I think now the last two three four months I think someone has um, talked to him because there are signs uh, of, of of development of maturity yeah 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 and uh, the thing you mentioned with all the companies a lot of contracts he had with a pie because he wanted to make him the big star so like with with the car company uh, with uh, Peugeot like Zagna you, how does it how is it pronounced Zagna, Zagna? I'm not yeah, sure I don't yeah. know we are not making uh, public relations for them but all the contracts uh, they have been already with a pie let's see. Because I think uh, what I know for sure is that Roger Federer uh, puts a lot of effort in him to secure the time after he retires. Because uh, you also know how many players uh, he tried to sign for teammate. We talked about this a lot. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I haven't talked about it on the show, but Federer was very active in recruitment for teammate personally. 
going, you know, making calls to play young players like, yes. you know, Francis Tiafo at the time. He was, you know, Federer was directly on the phone with Tiafo being like, hey, please sign with teammate um, and with other various other players as well. Uh, now it's public when we're talking about it. Um, but I think uh, you have the the sources and I did the resor- uh, the, the sources too. Uh, he also talked with with the mother of of Nick Kyrgios and stuff. He like talked this. with a yeah, lot of people. I mean, he was really trying, and honestly, he wasn't very successful. Not a lot of people. His conversion rate for being Roger. Federer why do was, you think? Why not... do you think? Why do you think he isn't successful? Be- I'm not because sure. Because there's a big there's a big race between. I think all the fans they just see the race um, with the Grand Slam record between Federer, Djokovic, and that. What I see as a journalist is a fight of influence. Uh, after the career, mm. if you see what is Roger Federer making with his uh, project uh, with the Labor Cup, this is yeah. the one project that w- worked out pretty well for teammate. Rafa Nadal has all the the academies around the world, which will make a lot of money. And Novak Djokovic, I think his part is something with the yeah with the sport politics uh, terms what he's yeah. now trying PTPA to do PTPA and with uh, Adria Tor maybe if that can yeah, yeah. probably won't come back exactly the same but yeah because he's making so much money in Serbia and he has so much influence there but he yeah. wants to secure his influence there and what i don't understand is because Roger Federer is the most popular player in terms of publicity yeah for sure why why he wasn't why he was not successful uh, in a way he could have been maybe maybe people just weren't impressed with the teammate you know management maybe they maybe, maybe they didn't think that they were going to be focused on other players maybe they thought that roger would stay the priority and why would you want to be you know mm-hmm. so much in someone's shadow at an agency as you would be with at federer's agency maybe i, I don't know i mean there's there's different different ways to look at it but uh yeah, but you're right. They, they, his conversion rate of getting people to sign with teammate was definitely very low. That's something, and a lot of other agents uh, from other agencies would complain to me constantly about Federer, the recruiter, and just thinking that it was not like appropriate the way that he was going about things there. Um, anyhow, uh, I want to ask you also a couple more things um, about so, about so, team, right, and the well, and the management. You you wanted to oh about team, sure. Oh, about the, yeah, yeah. Is it about Bresnik, you mean. And the and the yeah he's in he's in a, he's in a lawsuit too now right I think it fits to the topic that's yeah. why I uh, I mentioned it again uh, Can you explain this story? How many people know this story that way? Yeah 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 yeah. Uh, actually, it's like this. Uh, I think you know that uh, the coach, the ex coach Gunter Presnik, was involved involved obviously a long long time. Uh, Dominic Team started to practice in Vienna, in the capital of Austria, at the academy of, of uh, Gunter Presnik when he was uh, a small kid. Uh, 12 years old and he was a very uh, defense player and he developed him from a two-handed defense player to a one-handed uh, backhand player uh, with Raven's offense style as we know him today he get a lot of he got a lot of critics when he was younger because he was lacking success uh, in youth but then again now we know that it was successful um, last year in early last year um, Gunther Bresnik said that he d- didn't want to to join all the tournaments uh, anymore, and he chose uh, Nicolas Massou as the touring coach in first place, and uh, he also was involved in uh, in uh, getting um, his new manager. Uh, at the moment, I don't know the name. Uh, do you know the name? I forgot it. The Team Austrian Team guy. He's, no, I'm not sure. Yeah, he's uh, the thing is uh, he's also tournament tournament director uh, in Vienna. 
Okay. At the ATP Diana, and he's sitting at the ATP uh, board. And um, the thing is, um, that's also a thing only in tennis. You can be a manager of a player, you can be involved in, at the tournament, and you can sitting uh, at the ATP uh, board. So you see, there's a lack of uh, transparency at all at the tour. Is this is this is this Straka? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Herig Straka. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the name. I just forgot yeah. it. Um, yeah. Um, and obviously something broke in early 2019 between uh, Dominic team and um, Günther Bresnik. He was very involved. He was like a father figure also. And what we have seen in the last one and a half year is a very calm Dominic team developed to a player with clear quotes, not always popular quotes. Much more outspoken. Doping or coronavirus. Yeah, but mm. uh, he was also part of the of the Arthur tour as we know but he's I, I think he something broke but in a bigger picture he had to separate from his father figure to develop from a young guy to an experienced guy on tour that can beat the guys and now it was a bit sad because uh, a few hours after the Grand Slam final there was a talk in Austrian television and the television talk was sponsored by Red, uh, by a energy drink company Red Bull his sponsor yeah Yeah, and um, there's big money involved and the talk is sponsored by the TV production. Uh, so it was a completely, we're celebrating Dominic Team now talk. And in this talk, his father was sitting and he was uh, saying that oh, it's a completely mess with, uh, with Gunther Pressing now and he has suited us. Of course, he didn't lie, but I find it a bit uh, not neutral to say it on a on an advertisement show like this. Um, of course, all the Austrian and uh, me and some other journalists they um, asked uh, Presnik then, and he he gave out a, a public um, a statement uh, that he won't say anything about it at the moment, so that uh, Dominic can prepare. For the French Open, but now at the French Open, I think he said it to Simon Briggs in a press conference because he told me he confirmed it. He confirmed yeah. it uh, towards Simon that he uh, yeah sued him. I think it's about uh, money in 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 the future. How how much money uh, in the earnings uh, Gunter Bresnik can um, can get from it? And I heard that uh, it will be something about thirty percent that he wants to have. Um, And obviously there will be a fight again uh, about it. Uh, I find I, I find it sad. Um, I talked a lot of times with Gunter Bresnik and with Dominic Team. Uh, they were a big, big team, and it's very sad that it ends like this. But yep. uh, again, this is a sign for how much money is involved in tennis and how badly it can end. It can end. No, definitely. So thank you very much to Yannick for coming on NCR. And I'm excited to say there's actually about 20 or 30 more minutes of our conversation that we had earlier this week about some other topics, including what it was like for him to cover the Hamburg tournament recently in person and what that felt like to be back on site at a tournament during this pandemic. And also we get more into one of his favorite topics, which is doping in sports and the lack of testing that tennis was having during the pandemic and what kind of challenges that poses and some of the problems in general with the tennis anti-doping program that Yannick sees. So we'll put that rest of the chat out maybe in a later daily episode or something from the French Open or maybe on Patreon. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do with it yet, but it will be great. Put some links in the description of this episode to where you can follow Yannick on Twitter. It's a good guy to follow for sure to stay in the German loop. This is our 22nd and final episode of the month of September, which is by far an NCR record by a lot. I think 
last month in August, we had seven episodes. That still stands as the third highest total for any month. So to go from seven to 22 doing these daily shows during both the US Open and the French Open has been a whole new world for NCR in terms of level of output, really turning the spigot on high. And it's been not draining, though. It's just been it's been quenching and fulfilling and wonderful. And thank you guys for all for listening and support and for supporting the show on our Patreon as we ramp it up like never before. And you guys have wrapped up your support as well. We want to thank one person who has elevated their category of support to a higher level. That is Jean Simeon or Jean Simeon who stepped up to being a Slam Champ level person. So thank you to Jean there. And we can also thank the other Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode. Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Trong Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., and Antonio May Cumber, as well as Jean Simeon. And then thank you as well to our GOAT backers, Mike, Christopher Bishop, Charles Cena, and J.O.D. If you want to join them, and support NCR, the show that did 22 podcasts in September. I can't, that's a, such an insane number. 22 podcasts in one month. And 30-day month, not even one of the 31-day months, but 30-day month. Wow. Okay, <laughs> if you want to support uh, the show, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is the best way to do that. You can also send us emails, questions, comments to no challenges remaining at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. And I'm at Ben Rothenberg on Twitter. Yannick is at Schneejohn. He'll be linked in the uh, description. So follow everybody there. Thank you for your support. And we'll keep rolling along like Kiki Burton's in her wheelchair. <laughs> Bye, guys. Don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. Fly. should fall Remember you almost had it